0: So I want to put an image on the screen for you right now, and it's one that you may have seen before, all right, it's not showing up on there, Uh, so we will see if a bell can fix that. Uh, But the image that I was going to show you on the screen is one of a Christian fish. Just by a show of hands, you guys know what I'm talking about, the Christian fish. Oftentimes, you see them on the back of a car, maybe in a bumper sticker or some form of a decal on the back of a car, and I'm sure some of you probably have one of those on the back of your cars. Now, I remember my sister, when I first started driving and I became a Christian, she asked me if I wanted to put one on my car. And I always told her no, and she would wonder why I did not want to put this image, this beautiful image that represents Christianity on my bumper. And my simple answer was, well, I don't want people to judge my Savior off my driving. <laughs> and uh, I think some of you could chuckle about that because we have probably all had a time or two where someone has either spoken choice words to us, or we've spoken choice words to others based off of their driving. And it's always a little insult to injury after you see one of those at the back end of someone's bumper. Well, what you might not know is that this symbol here is not just a great 1990s campaign to get Christian fishes on the back of cars, but in reality it's a symbol that has been around for thousands of years, all the way leading up into the early church age. If you didn't know within the first few hundred years of the Christian movement, Christians would kind of come in and out of persecution. There were times where Christians were literally being persecuted and thrown into the arenas or just being killed and ridiculed for all sorts of different reasons, and it was awful. But what ended up happening was this symbol ended up very quickly becoming a symbol of people's faith. Now, it is a symbol for people's faith for a number of reasons. One is simply because of the story where Jesus fed the 5,000 people with a couple of fish. Or the fact that Jesus, when talking to his disciples about the kind of ministry that they're going to have, said what to them? That I would make you fishers of men. Or the fact that in the early church, when the church used to baptize people through immersion, there was oftentimes this image that was brought up of of converts becoming these little fishes. Well, during the heat of persecution, when Christians oftentimes needed to be careful with their faith, it was said that they would maybe be on a road and meet an individual And not knowing whether they were a Christian or not, they would take their foot and in the sand they would move their leg just like that and make a swoosh or a sweeping motion with their foot, of course being the top half of that portion of the fish. And if somebody else was a Christian and understood, they would go and make that sweeping motion from the opposite end, thus making the fish and knowing that the individual that was standing in front of you was not a foe, but a friend. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today, what it means to be a friend or a foe of God. And in order to do that, we're going to be reading the book of James. So again, as I said, we're going to be in chapter 4 today. And just so you know, I want to read one extra verse leading into chapter 4, verse 4, so I'll start us off on on 3, and it says, when you ask, speaking of when you ask God the Father in, in supplication, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures." Now, I'm going to prepare you. James' language that he uses here next is incredibly harsh. But don't lose what he's trying to say. So I'm going to read this next to you. He says this, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes a what? an enemy of God? Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the To the humble. You see, wrong motives in life are a result of worldly thinking. And in some ways, if you remember last week's message, and I encourage you that if you if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, you can always sign up for our podcast. It doesn't matter what platform you're on. If you just simply type in Peace Mennonite Community Church, we will come up, and you can subscribe to the podcast. I encourage you to listen to that message. But in, in last week's message, when we were specifically talking about the importance of allowing our desires to not be suppressed so much, but rather to make them known to God and ask God to instead shape our desires and let him know the desires of our hearts so that he may be able to fulfill it, just as Preston was so importantly talking about in the Acts method of prayer when he brought up that scripture of supplication. In a similar way, when we when we ask the Lord, though, with wrong motives, what that ends up being a result of is worldly thinking so while these verses seem disconnected in reality it's a perfect continuation you see james right here is trying to help bridge the gap and make the point known that if your mind if the things that you are thinking about the things that you are allowing yourself to want and desire is shaped by the world instead of God, then what does that mean? It means that you, according to Scripture, are an adulterous person. And what does he mean by that phrase? Well, the act of adultery is what? Betraying a covenant. Right? When you decide to get married and you make a covenant with the individual, with your spouse... You are pledging yourself to that individual, that you will remain monogamous to that individual, that you will pledge your heart and the way that you live to that other individual. And if you break that covenant, you are committing adultery. If you allow yourself to have a relationship with somebody other than your spouse, in a way that violates that covenant, you are committing adultery. And this is the image that that James wants to be able to bring to people's minds. The fact that when we betray our covenant, our relationship with the Lord, that we are committing adultery against Him. And this is why he calls the people adulterous. Now, here's the thing, church. Scripture does a great job of being able to encourage us when we are low. You know, one of the things that I encourage people to do and that I try to do myself is that when you are feeling the weight of life on you, when you are feeling the kinds of things that we oftentimes wrestle with, Feelings of anxiousness, feelings of uncertainty, feelings that really cause us a lack of peace in our lives. I encourage you to to look through scriptures in order to encourage yourself and find hope and solace because, trust me, the Lord cares about that. But the Lord also cares about how you are living. And as much as Scripture tries to encourage us and and allow us to feel better about our situations in life, Scripture is also very good at pointing out when we are betraying our relationship with the Lord and we can't abandon the one for the other. But instead, we need to be able to look at all of Scripture and allow it to shape our lives. Because here's the thing, if we do not get this right, what does James say? James says that we end up becoming enemies of God. Now, that's a scary thought. Now, I want to talk just really quick here about the word enemy. Enemy. This word is from the Greek word ekthros, and it's an interesting word in the Greek, and it, and it kind of originates from the word ektho, to hate. So when James is using this word, with, which the Bible translators turn into enemy, Some other meanings of how this word is used within their culture is to literally mean to hate, to be hateful, to do that passively or actively, to be hostile, to be an adversary. It would be fair to say that Satan, the devil, the enemy, commits ekthros against God, that he is an ekthros of God. He is an enemy of God. And scripture is literally saying that if you are an adulterous person, if you are breaking your relationship with the Lord and living a life that is worldly, then you are an enemy to God. Now, I need to be careful here because if you are a God fearing Christian, This should scare you, and it scares me. But we ultimately need to ask ourselves, who are you living for? Who are you living for? When you think about your life and the motivations of what leads it, who are you living for? Are you living for yourself? Are you living for your own selfish desires or ambitions or just centered around the things that that you ultimately want in your life, how you ultimately want to feel? Are you capturing the heart of God by living not just for yourself but instead denying yourself in order to pursue a relationship with God which ultimately is meant to be able to honor Him and honor others? Now, I've said multiple times, I want to be careful here, and I still want to be careful here because I don't want to create any undue anxiety about your relationship with the Lord. But at the same time, too, I don't want to sugarcoat our faith. The truth is, is that God's grace abounds. If you want to hear evidence of that, I encourage you to listen to a Professor Olson's um, message from just a couple weeks ago. God's grace abounds and His grace is rich and new every single day, but we should not take advantage of that grace and cheapen that grace by willfully living for the world versus God. We need to ask ourselves, is what we are desiring out of life, is what we are doing out of life bringing us closer to the Lord, or is it promoting what we know stands against the Lord? Is it causing you to retract from God or come closer to God? To harm what is sacred, is it leading you into sin? And if this is the case then the startling truth is is that you may be acting more as an enemy of God than as a friend. You know many of you know that I've just been for enrichment I decided to audit a course at Denver Seminary this past semester. Um, where I'm a graduate from, and it's been a wonderful time. I've been taking a course on preaching because I want to continue to get better at preaching and and get better at being able to communicate God's Word effectively, and so we're at at, at this cycle right now within the semester where I'm having this awesome opportunity to be able to hear from fellow classmates, and they're presenting sermons to us every single week, and there was one sermon in particular that just happened from a, a couple weeks ago that really wrote. To the top for me. And this young lady was was preaching and she was doing a phenomenal job, and she specifically uh, shared this story. You see, this young lady used to work as a barista, uh, which is kind of a fancy word for for people that make coffee for other people, so at a Starbucks. And she was working as a barista there and working with a fellow employee who wasn't a believer, he wasn't a Christian. And they were working on a Sunday together, and the guy was rather dejected, and he ended up saying, I hate working on Sundays. So kind of curious about that, this girl decided to probe that and figure out why it is that he hates working on Sundays. So he asked her, so she asked her, and, and, and he said, you know, I really hate working on Sundays because there's a church right next to this coffee shop here. And right when church gets out, usually everybody from the church comes into the coffee shop and we're so slammed. And every single week, I just feel the overwhelming pressure of all of these people who some of them get really nasty with me about how quickly I'm making their drinks or if I'm making their drinks correctly enough. So Sunday has been my least favorite day to work because I just hate dealing with that every week. Now, me sharing this story with you should, in some ways, cause you to feel some not-so-great feelings, some lament, right? Because for this individual who is not a Christian... His only interaction with other people that are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, that are believers of the living God, that are the kinds of people that are supposed to be promoters of peace, of redemption, of reconciliation, is what kind of experience? A totally negative one. And the question that this young lady asked, in her message that really hit me hard, is are people in your life more curious about Jesus because of you? I'll ask that again. Are people in your life more curious about Jesus because of you? Ask yourself that question because me thinking about that question is is sometimes yeah but there's also other times where not really and this should really bother us it bothers me because I realized that whether, whether I accept this or not, I represent the kingdom of God. I represent the person of Jesus. And so do you, each and every single one of you. If you claim to the name of Christ, if you have said that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, then God is calling you to be an ambassador of him, which means that you represent him to the world around you. How are you representing the Lord? Are you representing the kingdom of God as a friend or as a foe? Meaning, are you living a kind of life that is literally working against what God is trying to do in this world? For example, what's the name of our church? Peace! Are we people that when we enter into their lives, that they feel like peace is coming? Or is it more like, my goodness, turmoil has come? (laughs) When you enter into the lives of other people, whether they're close to you or not, whether they're your family members or a stranger, are they more curious about Christ because of you? Church, I believe God wants us to live the kind of life that draws people to Him. You see, I believe that inside every single individual, there is a yearning for them to be able to experience and know God. They might put up their own walls and deny Him and prevent that from happening in their lives, but ultimately, we are people that are designed to worship. And we might pick all sorts of different objects to worship, but ultimately, we were designed to worship the living God, amen? And I want to live a life that draws people into worshiping and knowing and coming into contact with that living God. But maybe you're saying, Pastor, that sounds great, but I honestly do not know how to stop giving into my selfish desires. And if that's you, and if that's what you're saying, then pay close attention to what James says next. James says in verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the who? The devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I wanted you to read that word, devil, there, because in the Greek, it's diabolos, and it, and it directly means the kingdom of darkness. It directly means Satan. And for whatever reason within our culture, we have this tendency within the Western world, for a number of different reasons, to underplay that. You know, one of my favorite quotes from uh, the opening chapter of the Screwtape Letters that C.S. Lewis wrote was, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil or devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You see, there's two errors, at least here, that C.S. Lewis is trying to point out that I think are 100% true for today's world. And one of them is to overemphasize, right? Right? I'll put that on the screen for you, to overemphasize the kingdom of darkness and the devil. And what that means is, is you find the devil in under every single rock, under every car that doesn't turn on, under every situation where something bad happens. You see the enemy there. And sometimes it's like, no, man, your battery's dead. Did you charge it? Did you plug it in? Did you, you know... And it's as simple as that. No, you just made a mistake. No, you just did something. That's not the devil coming after you. (laughs) You've been eating hamburgers all your life. That's why your heart's not doing that great. That's not always the case. I'm just making some generalizations here. But you get what I'm trying to say, right? that we can overemphasize the kingdom of darkness. And we maybe have seen this before. You know, many of you know that I grew up in a more charismatic flavor of the church, and I saw this all the time. I can't tell you how many times someone has cast out a spirit from a a car that didn't turn on. (laughs) I don't blame you, buddy. I'd want all those presents too. And really, one of the fruits of overemphasizing the work of the devil is, is what? Paranoia. You become a paranoid person. Now, the other one that C.S. Lewis brings up is to underemphasize him. Now, I think chances are many of us in this crowd today probably underemphasize the work of the devil. And what that probably means is is it 's not even on your radar you don 't even consider it you know within the military one of the the, the words that has been coined and used and now it 's been applied to other types of settings is having good situational awareness and you 've probably heard this before, and really this concept started to develop in World War I when the airmen in particular had this terrible terrible rate of 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 death so if you were in particular the british um air Corps there you most likely had a coin toss chance of whether you were going to survive or not most of them died So one of the concepts that was brought up about that was having situational awareness, which simply just means being able to sense your environment well enough that you can, in some ways, understand the present and the future and and where things are kind of going. In some ways, as Christians, we need to have a situational awareness. We need to realize that there are times where the enemy is coming against our lives. There are times where we are putting ourselves in situations that we should not put ourselves in, that we are creating for ourselves or we are feeling from an outside attack a situation that may cause us to stumble or to give into sin. And James is trying to give us good advice here. He's saying to do what? Well, when these moments happen, to resist, to not give in, to not allow yourself to just willfully go wherever you feel like you want to go in that moment. And if you do that, what is the promise that James gives in verse 7 at the end of it? It says that if you resist, he will do what? He will flee from you. So ultimately, what does this mean? This means that in every situation of trial and temptation, or when you feel like the enemy is bearing down in your life, that if you resist... He will eventually go. He will go. Church, have the awareness to realize that there are moments in life where the battle isn't just between two people. Where the battle is also happening in the spiritual realm. Where we need to pray where we need to ask for the Holy Spirit's influence over our situation and to, in some ways, speak the truth that the Lord is over my life and resist through prayer. This is spoken on a number of times in Scripture about how our battles in life aren't just with flesh and blood but that there are real spiritual battles that happen in this world that we need to be aware of. So we shouldn't overemphasize it and we shouldn't underemphasize it. But what's even better is what comes next. And it's a verse that I think is worth memorizing. And it's in verse 8. It says this, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Some translations, like the English Standard Version, says draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, that's kind of odd advice, right? Because in some ways he's saying, do the opposite of everything in life that makes you happy. But in reality, what he, he's not trying to, to focus on your misery here. He's trying to offer another promise. And what is that promise? That if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Now, this is a weird thing as, as people that are evangelical or post-Reformation people because we often think that God does all, the drawing. But in reality, James kind of shows the interplay of our faith between the fact that God pursues us, right? And we're going to talk about that more in the season of Advent, how Christ came into the world with a heart and a mission to pursue us. But in reality, Scripture still implores us to do what? To seek after God and to draw near to Him. So church, we need to take that seriously. And that is kind of the big point. Point for today, the big idea for today is that we need to seek the God who is passionately seeking us. Seek the God who passionately seeks us. Church, if you do this, if you seek after God, Scripture promises that God will draw near to you. Now that encourages me because that means that regardless of the situations that I find myself in, that if I do that, God is going to show up in my life. I don't know how, but he will. And I'm convinced and I'm confident of that. When you are going through your situations of despair, that is the perfect time to draw near to God. When you are also going through your high moments of life, that is an even better time in some ways to draw near to God because so often we only draw near to God when we are going through the worst of circumstances, but ultimately we need to be convinced that drawing near to God allows the Holy Spirit, it allows God to be able to come into our lives. But it takes time. It takes effort. It takes intentionality of setting up the space, both in our mind and in our day, to allow the Holy Spirit to draw near to us. I mean, we know this, right? We know that God is with us wherever we go, but sometimes we treat God as if He's just, you know, in another state at the moment, down the block. We need to live lives that are ultimately seeking out God. You know, one of my favorite things to do with my son is just bath time. We have a lot of fun doing bath time. He loves to go in the tub and we have a whole bunch of little toys that we play with. And one of the toys that I love playing with him is he has this little octopus toy. And the name of the game with this octopus toy is that he's a dirty little octopus and he can't stand being clean. So little boys that clean themselves up, that's like his kryptonite. He can't handle it. So it's it's my silly way of trying to make sure that Theodore appreciates getting himself clean because he knows that, that the octopus can't come after him if he's clean. You get it. I'm a parent. We try to think of anything that works. <laughs> Well, usually after bath time, which he's always reluctant to get out of the shower, I wrap him up in this big horse blanket that I have, and I mean, it's huge. It's way bigger than he is, and, and he's had it for years, but still it's, it's huge and it's big, and he loves being cuddled up and wrapped up in this blanket. And every single time that I put him in this blanket, without fail, he wants to play hide-and-seek. And what he does is he ends up putting the little horse hood over his face and he bundles himself up in snug like that. And then he goes, where's Theodore? (laughs) (laughs) And he wants me to play hide and seek with him. And it's a fun thing to be able to do as a dad. And it's rather silly because I'll literally sometimes be holding him in my hand and I'll go, I don't know, where's Theodore? Where's Theodore? I don't know where he is. Or he's on the bed and still, where's Theodore? I don't know. I don't know. Where is he? And without fail, he'll open himself up and he goes, Here I am. And as a dad, it's a great memory. And I'm sure if you're a parent, or a grandparent, you have some similar memories, right? Of being able to do that with your loved ones. But you see, the phrase that Theodore is oftentimes saying is this, this, where's Theodore? And he he says that because he wants to be found. But really, the the goal of hide and seek is not necessarily the finding, right? As an adult, I know this because I know that the goal of of a good game of hide and seek is, is what? the hiding. It's finding that, that, that perfect spot where you can go and, and hide behind something and nobody find you. You know, many of you, I'm sure, have a spot that you can think about when you were a kid. Maybe it was inside the kitchen cupboard or somewhere else that you would go and, and you knew that if you were in that spot, it was going to be incredibly difficult to find you. And because of that, you were good at hide and seek. But even though we know that the goal of hide-and-seek is really in the hiding and having fun in the hiding, my son focuses on the finding. And you see, I think the beauty of our faith is sometimes wrapped up in those two concepts. That ultimately our faith and the beauty of being able to seek the Lord out doesn't just come in the perpetual trying to, to seek Him, but comes in what? The finding. The experiencing. The moment where you finally be a, are able to come into contact and experience God for all of His splendor. I think one of the stories that really showcases that well comes out of the Gospel of Luke and in particular the story of the prodigal son see for the son if you don't know this story there was two sons and the eldest son got tired of of working the land if you will and decided that he did not he did not want to participate that in that anymore so he does what he asks his father for his inheritance, which, if you didn 't know, it was in some ways almost wishing his father dead, because typically the inheritance wouldn 't come on to the to the eldest until after death. But this son asks for this inheritance, and radically the father ends up giving it to him. So the son ends up leaving his homeland for another and just lives a wild life, trying to hide as far as he can from his father and lives the life that he wants to live. But that ultimately leads him into poverty, the kind of poverty where he's sharing the same trough that pigs would eat from, realizing the kind of character of his father and that he had a better life under the care of his father, he decides to go back and seeks out his father. And in the moment where he finally sees his father again and his father is at a distance, something radical and amazing happens because you see the son in some ways is prepared to just live like a servant in the house of the father. But the father sees the son and immediately starts running up to him and clothes the son and places his sacred possessions into the hands of this son. Something that you would not expect from in this story. But you see, our relationship with God is so similar. We have these moments where we pull away from the Lord, where we try to live for our own desires, and without realizing it, we are living more as enemies of God. But hopefully when we realize that what the Father has for us is truly good, we start to come back. And the Father doesn't rebuke us. He doesn't make us feel guilty for that. But rather He runs around us, clothes us, gives us His own ring that lets us know that we are His. The beauty is truly in finding the Lord and experiencing Him in your life? Are you doing that? Are you seeking the God that passionately seeks you? If you're not, I encourage you this week to take the time to do that. To take the time to seek out the God who passionately seeks us. Because until we do that, We will remain restless in our hearts. Just as St. Augustine said so long ago that our hearts are restless until they can find rest in Him. Let's pray.